0: You're listening to the Southern Solstice Podcast with me, Sarah Sadler. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the first episode of the Southern Solstice podcast. I'm really happy to be able to share the book with you in this format. It's going to be more like an audiobook podcast, and week by week, I'm going to read to you a chapter from the book, Southern Solstice. For those of you unfamiliar with the premise of Southern Solstice, I'm going to read the synopsis from the back of the book. As rich and distinctive as the Lowcountry itself— Southern Solstice presents a clever and charismatic journey of love, heartache, adaptation, and emotional fortitude as told through a patina of family heritage. When 24-year-old Larkin Devereaux is left brokenhearted by her fiancé on the West Coast, she reluctantly returns to her charmed aristocratic roots in Charleston, South Carolina to rebuild her life and gain self-determination in a prominent Southern family that offers everything and requires nothing. As her impetuous mother orchestrates a reunion with a first love, Larkin becomes entangled in a dilemma where she must choose between an intriguing, passionate plastic surgeon who is anything but superficial and the annoyingly irresistible man who has silently loved her forever. While Larkin's story could have been told anywhere, I knew that Charleston was the right place to base the story. Um, even though the mother-daughter relationship and love triangle aspect of the book is really just without region, I wanted the reader to feel connected to the landscape. And you really can't beat the coastal south as far as landscape goes. So I hope that you smell the boggish air and you feel the breeze off of Charleston Harbor while you're reading the book. I grew up spending a lot of time in the low country. My grandparents had a beach house there. Um, So while we lived in North Carolina, we spent a lot of time going to the Charleston area, and there's really nothing that you can't love about it. It is magical and gets in your blood. So if you haven't been, you definitely need to go. Um, In the meantime, I will let the book take you to Charleston. Chapter 1, Snow Globe Don't make this harder on me than it already is, Larkin. I didn't plan it this way. "'Sometimes these things happen and you just have to see where it goes "'before you plan the rest of your life based on obligation.' "'A hot, round tear began to blur the vision in her right eye, "'making the scene in the kitchen seem as though she was watching it through a snow globe. "'She tilted her head, repositioning the blurriness. "'She and I have something special,' he continued. "'I can't explain it. It's just right.' "'David bit his bottom lip. "'You remember what it's like to be in love. "'You would do anything to be with that person.' Lark, that's how I feel about her. Larkin watched as David paced anxiously around the sink, balancing on his heels and leaning on the counter. He, a man that had hated conflict and confrontation, looked relieved to be saying all of this to her. His words sounded rehearsed, almost made up. I love you, but we promised each other in the beginning we would always be honest, no matter what. Remember what it's like to be in love. The realization that she had been in love by herself would not register. David's words rang in her head, but they did not find a place to settle. How long? she wanted to ask, but did not. The tears in her eyes stung more than the silence, but she refused to release them. The wedding is in four months. Friends and family from Charleston would be coming to Seattle, bringing gifts and well-wishes with them like a caravan of happiness. There would be wedding showers and bridal parties. Toasts made in their honor and childhood reflections displayed on a projection screen, Sinatra playing in the background. It would have been so wonderful. "'What am I supposed to do?' she blurted out in a frail voice from the bar stool where she sat, repositioning her hands underneath her legs. "'I mean, we have the wedding and the house, and we've got the party that your friends are throwing us next month, and—' David cut her short. "'Larkin, listen, I'm sorry. I don't know what else I can say.' It's better now than later. His voice was warm but tight, pleading her to believe him. Her thoughts drifted to their wedding registry, and the words David Maddox and Larkin Devereaux, Holy Matrimony, July 18, burned inside of her mind. She visualized the china pattern that they had chosen the week before, bone white with subtle gold inlay and muted blue rim, delicately understated but appropriate for all forms of entertaining and dishwasher safe, the store clerk had told her. "'China reflects its hostess exactly,' the woman had said. "'The pattern you choose speaks volumes to the style of life you'll have "'and the friends you will entertain. "'I can tell everything I need to know about someone by their china pattern.'" Larkin flashed back to the fervent retail smile of the woman who had presumably summed her up so completely and wondered if she'd predicted this in her future. Walking into the store that day, David had said, "'Why don't we wait on the china? "'One pattern for the rest of our lives seems like a pretty big decision.'" She waved his plea off with a kiss, not seeing through the implication. She supposed now that he wasn't referring to China. He could have told her then, but he didn't. He only wrapped his arms around her and walked down the aisles, scanning cookware and linens, never saying another word about China. You can stay in the house until you're set up on your own, David continued. I'm going away for a while anyway. I need to regroup. His eyes drifted to the floor as he adjusted the edge of the rug with his foot. The boldness in his words had begun to dissipate, and a deep, unacknowledged guilt was evident in his voice. Larkin's attention moved to a burgundy duffel bag lying on the floor beside the island butcher block. "'That's my bag,' she said without inflection. "'I'll make sure you get it back.' David's voice was soft. He fidgeted again uncomfortably. "'No, you can keep it.' Larkin shrugged without looking up. "'I don't use it anyway.' The amount of civility she projected stunned her. She stared down at the bag, wondering if she could have ever known it would be the object of such an arctic conversation. She didn't even remember where she had gotten it, only that it had sat in the closet, unused for years. David picked up the duffel and adjusted the canvas strap over his shoulder, keeping his thumb looped beneath it. She noticed for the first time that he had been holding his keys throughout their conversation, gripping them like they were a lifeline. A yellow minivan pulled in front of the house and parked on the street, the well-worn brakes grinding to a halt. An eager cab driver promptly got out and stood doorside, hands crossed in front of him, waiting to handle the new passenger's luggage. Larkin's attention went back to David, and she sat looking at him for a moment. She didn't focus on any one part of him, but glanced across him as if he was behind a one-way mirror. He was undeniably handsome, with striking features and moody blue eyes. His composure is what she'd always loved most about him, though. He was strong and steady, never wavering because of fear or doubt. Those same qualities were betraying her now. She watched as a bead of sweat slowly dripped down the side of his face, and agitation grew in his stance. Was he waiting for something? Was he waiting for her to say it was okay to leave? Waiting for her to beg him to stay? Waiting to change his mind? The taxi in the driveway sounded its horn, warning David of the time. I told you I love you and I mean that. David tugged at his sweater and stood up, straight and tall, not allowing concern to interfere with the delivery of his words. I know you can't, but try to believe me. Somehow saying I love you and I'm leaving you for someone else in the same conversation almost canceled each other out. Almost. He didn't apologetically kiss her goodbye or touch her arm in failed regret, He repositioned the duffel bag strap on his shoulder, flipped the keys in his hand, and set for the door, locking it behind him out of habit. Larkin sat still, listening to his footsteps down the front steps, across the walkway and onto the street where the taxi waited for him. She heard the driver offer to help him with his bag, but he declined. The gliding sound of the minivan door opening felt like a tear in the center of her heart. A few seconds went by before the door zipped closed again, and the van accelerated down the street. It was only then that she could hear the lonely sound of her heart beating, deep and hollow. She inhaled sharply and began to let out all of the tears that she had kept David from seeing. She wanted so badly for him to hear her, to understand the pain that she felt. She couldn't think about how she had just been betrayed, the mess left to clean up, how she would explain what had happened, and how she could ever start over. She only felt the cold stillness of a lonely house and a broken heart. It was four in the afternoon by the time she was able to collect herself enough from crying to see that it had been a crisp, sunny day in the stereotypically overcast Seattle. Her head pounded from trying to understand what had happened. She couldn't help but replay the scene in her head over and over, unable to determine the actual words from the ones she thought she had heard. She remembered that it must have been mid-morning when David met her in the kitchen. With no alarm in his voice, he said that he needed to talk. It wasn't until he asked her to sit down that she felt panic catch in her chest. "'Is everything okay?' she asked, taking a quick sip of her coffee. "'Did you put my jeans in the dryer again?' She smiled at him, jokingly, trying to lighten the mood. David famously had a flair for the dramatic, especially on the weekends when they were both home and had no plans." It would not have been unlike him to have planned an impromptu sailing trip with friends to the San Juans or to book a bed and breakfast for the night on Friday Harbor. When they'd first met, he had bragged that surprises were his specialty and had undisputedly owned up. She remembered how David's eyes had left hers, and in that moment she felt an incredible sinking feeling. She sat there silently, waiting for him to begin. "'God, this is really hard to say,' he said." For a second, she thought he looked like he was going to cry, but he quickly forced himself to go on. When we met, I knew right away that you were special. I knew you were someone I could spend the rest of my life with. We got engaged really fast, you moved in, we started making all these plans, and before I knew it, it felt like my whole life was planned, just like that. He took a deep breath and continued, I just don't think this is what I want right now. She blinked at him, confused. Are you saying you want to postpone the wedding? I mean, we both agreed we wanted a summer wedding, and it's been over a year since we got engaged. She inhaled deeply as his words slowly began to register. I don't—he looked at her sharply. We're not getting married. David shifted his weight and began shaking his head in confirmation. I met someone. I wanted to tell you so many times, but I had to be sure it was for real before I did this to you— You have no idea how hard it's been for me to watch you plan this wedding, knowing that it was never going to happen. She remembered how her face had flooded with heat and the kitchen went swirling around her. She grabbed on tightly to the counter and glanced down at her engagement ring, suddenly feeling the weight of it on her finger. How could she not have seen this? Nothing in David's behavior had alarmed her. No working later than usual, no last-minute business trips or late-night phone calls worth sneaking away to take. Larkin snapped back to reality, rubbing her face in her hands and making a congested grumbling noise. She had so many questions she wanted answers to, but for now she just needed the pain to remind her it was all real. She wanted to start hating him, but couldn't; she only missed him, something she felt weak and stupid for. She had been lying on the sofa in the living room for what seemed like days. The quiet rustle of a Saturday afternoon lulled in and out of the house from the outside world. Dedicated joggers and little dogs barking at cats provided enough occasional distractions to keep her lying there, listening and remembering. David's house had never felt quite like home, but it suddenly felt like she was just a visitor now, urged to leave. The first time David brought her here, she was charmed by the statuesque rows of established townhomes gracing the steep slope of East Highland Drive in Seattle's eclectic Capitol Hill neighborhood. Even though she was a newcomer to the Pacific Northwest, there was a cadence that she immediately felt connected to. David, an entrepreneur in his early 30s, started his own advertising firm and had done well enough to reside and work in Capitol Hill. He was on the fast track to the top and had recently expanded his firm, his success seemingly effortless. Though his appearance was clean-cut, she somehow still expected David's house to be messy, with no sense of style or color scheme. She was surprised to find that he had thoughtfully decorated with cool silvery blues and even had art hanging on the walls, contemporary and inexplicable as it was. There was a tastefully placed ceramic pot of wheatgrass beside a juicer on the kitchen counter. An orchid perched on an orderly stack of unopened coffee table books in the living room and royal blue damask throw pillows for the light blue sofa and armchairs. There was a calm masculinity in the house. Nothing screamed of boldness and disorder except for the dishes toppled together in the sink. It was in that mess that she felt she could be needed here the soft edge that was missing from this street, this house, this man, she could provide. The energy she felt was not warm like the rich, inviting drawl of Charleston. It was conflicted, ushering in insecurities and imbalance. Motivated people with direction and ambition set the tone for Seattle's heartbeat. Everyone was going somewhere, becoming something, but Larkin wondered if they were actually living— Before meeting David, she had done little venturing outside of the suburban Bellevue part of town after taking a public relations internship with a water trust conservation group based in Puget Sound. Larkin was three months into a six-month internship when David's company offered the conservation group a pro bono ad campaign on water usage. Larkin had thrown herself so far into the internship that she hadn't had time to make friends or learn the city in her short time there. After all, she wasn't planning on staying— Seattle was a short-term solution to a long-term vocational problem. David was instantly taken with her Southern charm and fluent beauty, and he had no problem talking her into going on a tour of the city with him. Before long, they were inseparable. With all of the working together and sleeping together, it only felt natural to live together. After a few months, even that didn't seem like enough. So David proposed by the water on Alki Beach after Larkin's last day at the Water Trust. Larkin said yes faster than she could think about it, and she only remembered feeling happier than she had ever felt in her 24 years. Being with David made the last 15 months of her time in Seattle fly by, and only occasionally did she think about what she'd left behind in South Carolina, and who had left her behind. It was getting dark outside now. The last glow of the late winter sun was disappearing behind East Highland Street, sinking deep into the earth and bringing with it the misty chill of a Pacific Northwest night. Her eyes were heavy and swollen, but she dreaded sleep, not because she knew how hard it would be to be alone, but because she knew that she would awaken countless times, startled by her recall of what had happened. The idea of the projected pain was piercing and exhausting. She didn't consider sleeping in the master bedroom as if it were magically off-limits now that she was an unwelcome guest in this house, like Goldilocks. She changed out of the pajamas that she had worn all day and put on a pair of well-worn yoga pants and a tank top and crawled beneath the sheets of the guest bed down the hall. Thank you so much for joining me for the first episode of Southern Solstice Podcast. Make sure you come back next week for chapter two, where you'll be introduced to some of the best characters in the book. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or by visiting my website, sarasadler.com. I'd like to thank my producer, Melissa Fuller-Check, Gary Sadler, my dad, for writing the soundtrack, and Elizabeth Lennox for the artwork.